St. James, I'm glad that you guys, I'm glad that all of you are here. It's good to see you. Can, uh, t- can you take a second to look over the uh, announcements in the back of the bulletin? I'm not going to read over them. There's some youth group stuff. There's an activity that's happening today. There's some mercy ministry stuff that uh, Stacy and Shanna are kind of uh, working together on. Uh, check that out too and uh, jump in and get involved with uh, that sort of thing. And as always, there's the Zoom Bible study that's uh, today at uh, 11.30 or Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock and or Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. And if you're interested in that, let me know. All right, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to forgive our sins. O oh, Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, 
a poor, sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Psalm 2, this is the entirety of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is Exodus 15, uh, 1-19. This is a song that the people of Israel sang right after they had been delivered from the Egyptians across the Red Sea. And, you know, on the far shore, they realize, uh, you know, we're out of slavery and we are now a free people. And they sing this song. And Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Quick reading from Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, 
The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? I think that's the right way to say it, too. I, Pilate, this isn't like a genuine question on Pilate's part. He's not like epistemologically curious. I think he is cynical that there is such a thing as truth. All he knows is political power. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's a, I'm sorry, that's, a, um, that's an unfortunate. Robber, that's not the right word. In, in Greek, it's lestai, which is the word for revolutionary. The, the Roman Empire didn't execute people for theft. They did execute people, however, for planning sedition against, the, against Caesar, which is what Jesus got executed for. Okay, so, sorry for interrupting so many times. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, um, <clears throat> we're going to start uh, something new today and for the next few weeks, and I'm going to tell you what it is, and you're going to think this is going to be boring, and uh, you very well could be right. This could be boring. Uh, but um, when I, when I came here two years ago and just looking around, Doug and Carol are the only people in the room who were here two years ago. Uh, when I came here, uh, Doug and Bob told me, hey, you, you, this church constitution, we've talked to uh, uh, Dr. George and, uh, you know, at the uh, district office, and he says your, your constitution's, like, out of date. You know, one of the problems is, like, really um, uh, committee-heavy. The kind of thing that people hate about churches, you know, meeting at these long committee meetings where, you know, one person kind of dominates and talks a lot and nothing ever gets done. Uh, but actually, there, there was a deeper problem to uh, the Constitution, and that is that the Constitution of our church wasn't able to keep a bad pastor from trying to destroy the church. So, for those of you who are new, who haven't heard the story, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I actually don't know it all myself. And the people who went through it are kind of reluctant to even discuss it. But our church here was started by Trinity in the early 1980s. We met for a couple years at the high school. And then this building was built in around 1984. Uh, soon after that, they called a pastor who was here. Uh, you know, the, the, when he came here in the mid-1980s, this church was um, you know, young but growing and thriving. So, you know, maybe about 125 people here on a Sunday worshiping. He was here for about 20 years, and uh, he was not a good uh, pastor. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not a good pastor either. So uh, what I mean by that, though, is something different than that. He converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, and then, which, you know, I mean, people convert sometimes. But what, what made him a bad pastor 
was that he tried to convert the church along with him. He tried to force the church into becoming Eastern Orthodox with him. And slowly but surely whittled St. James down to about 10 people, 10 to 15 people. And uh, two years ago, uh, that's kind of the state that it was in. And so what, we, what, we, what we've been talking about, and if you've been in adult Bible study, you've been through these conversations, and now I kind of want to bring it into sermons so that the people who don't come to adult Bible study can participate in, his, in it as well, although not as much of a conversation as me just talking, is what we want to do is we wanted to change the Constitution to prevent bad pastors uh, from taking over a church and kind of doing bad stuff. The groundwork for that, though, needed to be a look into God's Word to ask, what does God say about biblical church government? And there, I said it. Biblical church government, and now you know it's going to be boring. So just try and hang on, because it's, it's, it's going to be important, boring or not. But I, don't think, I think it's not going to be boring either. I think it's going to be fresh, and it's going to be uh, liberating, and um, I think it's going to be empowering for all of us. So what I want to do is I want to lay out, if I can, uh, from God's Word, some foundational principles to build on to have, in, in, in pursuit of the question, what does God say about how the church should be run? Because that's, that's what it has to come down to. But part of this is going to be hard, too, because there's two parts of us that are going to say, you know, there's a part of us that's like, I'm American. American government's the style of government we should have in the church. And so it's going to be hard to get past that. The other thing that's going to be hard to get past is we all have churches that we grew up in that had a particular style of government that were like, well, that's the right way. That's the way we've always done it. And I, we're probably going to end up using stuff from both, but I don't want to start with the American government or I don't want to start from the church governments that you and I grew up with, even if, even if they were good, even if that church was good. What I want to do is start, start from the Bible and ask the Bible, how does God want us to to organize the church, all right? So that's what we're going to start doing today. And today I want to give you two, like, foundational principles, and then later on we'll start building on it. So I'm not going to talk any specifics about, like, you know, what church government should look like, um, but just foundational principles, okay, if we can. So in your reading, Exodus 15 reading, uh, let me start off. I'm going to, let me start off uh, with the first foundational principle. Exodus 15 and verse 18 the last line of the song that you know, the people of Israel sang says, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. This is the first time in the Bible that the Lord is referred to as the king. Now, I know the word king doesn't show up in that verse in your English Bibles, and that's because in English, our noun, king and queen, don't have corresponding verbs. We usually, we'll usually say, like, the queen reigns. We don't ever, we don't, in, our, in English, we don't say the queen queens. You know, queen and king aren't verbs, they're nouns. But in Hebrew, actually, um, king and queen are both verbs and nouns. So literally it says in, in Exodus 15, 18, Yahweh will king forever and ever. This is the first time in the Old Testament where Yahweh is spoken of as king. And the reason why is simple is because Israel didn't have a king before this. You know, they, were, they were a minority ethnic group oppressed in slavery in Egypt. And the king that they had was not a king that was favorable to them. It was the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And now the question is, well, how did, how did Pharaoh get beat by us who had no army and no king? And the answer is, is well, you really do have a king. And the name of that king is Yahweh. All right, this, is the found, this, is the, this is the number one foundational principle 
that we're going to work with. And if we stray away from this at any point in time, we're going to need to get called back to this. God is the king. God is the king. That's the foundation. God is the king. And I, I, I don't know if you guys are cynical or not. Actually, I know some of you, and I know you are cynical. I don't know if you're suspicious of, you're suspicious of me that where I'm headed with this is foundational principle number one, God is the king. Foundational principle number two, Aaron, he's wearing a white robe and a green stole, much closer to God than any of you. So if you want to follow God, you have to obey him. If you think that that's principle number two, uh, uh, A, you're wrong. I'm not going to say that because it's not in the Bible. B, you're right because I'll try to do that. I will try to pull the pastor card on you. I will try to get my way around here by saying, well, I'm the professional Christian here. You guys should do what I tell you. And when I do, I'm going to need you guys to call me to account. All right, so that, that, that's not where we're headed. In practice, it might be, unfortunately. I'm, I'm going to need to repent. But in theological reality, it's not where we're headed. So like, just give me grace for a few minutes, you know, a few weeks, I should say, to get to, to what this is actually going to look like. But for right now, just note, and I'm going to repeat this many, many times over the week because these are going to be principles we build on. God is the king. Now, we mean two things in the Old Testament when we say this. First of all, God is the king of Israel. That's what Israel means in Exodus 15. You got your king, Pharaoh. We got our king, and our king's better than your king. Our king beats your king, right? You want to go to war with us? The Lord is a man of war. That's what it says in here. It's a slave people saying this. Our king is a man of war. You know, 15 minutes before this, they couldn't say this. They were trapped on the side of the, of, of the Red Sea, certain they were going to get killed by their, by, by their slave owners. But now they can say Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is a king forever and ever. The other thing that we mean, though, is that Yahweh is not just a localized king. Yahweh is not just, you know, a family deity. Yahweh is actually, it's a bold, bold confession of faith in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the king of the entire world. Let me give you a couple quick examples. I'm just going to quote this. From Genesis 14, Melchizedek meets Abraham, and Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Who owns heaven and earth? It's not Pharaoh. And it's not like Yahweh owns this chunk of property here. That's Israel. And Pharaoh owns this chunk of property over here. I mean, Pharaoh, I guess in a certain technical sense, owns that. But actually, there's an owner above him who's leasing it to him. He doesn't realize it yet. But it's being leased to him by the real owner. Yahweh possesses heaven and earth. Another quick example from 2 Kings 19. This also shows up in Isaiah 39, by the way. Hezekiah looks out his window and sees the Neo-Assyrian armies bearing down on Jerusalem. And he knows this is, the, this is the most powerful empire in the world. We're doomed. And he prays to God and he says, basically, God help us. And he's not like, you know, God, we need a miracle here. He appeals to God on the basis of God's universal kingship. He says this, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. They think they have their gods, they think they have their kings, but you are actually in charge of everything. You can do whatever you want. These two principles are true. These two principles are uh, joined together in Psalm chapter 2. We're going to get to that in just a second. But let me make a really controversial statement. I think it's controversial. It, it, might, it might not be. If it's not, just, you know, just yawn and act like you're interested. But it might be controversial, and that's this. All leadership, whether it's civil government, whether it's police, whether it's the administration of your local college, whether it's uh, the leadership at a church, whether it's the leadership in your family, all leadership, if it does not willingly sit underneath the authority of the high God 
the high king God, the creator God, will be broken and twisted and will not work right. Guaranteed. This is one of the things that Psalm 2 is trying to say. Kings of the earth, if you, you can look at it if you want to. It's here in your bulletin. Listen, kings of the earth, rulers of the earth, you better make up with the creator God. You, you don't realize this. You think that you are a big man on campus. You actually have somebody in charge of you, and if you don't make up with him right away, right away, you're gonna, get, you're gonna find yourself blown up. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Make up with God before he smashes you in pieces like a potter's vessel. All forms of government. This, this is not like a, okay, so God, he's kind of a, like a Christian spiritual thing. But then we have other forms of government that are in charge over here. No, no, Psalm 2 insists. The creator God insists that he is in charge of all government. This is what it means with Revelation. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. And if they knew about prime ministers and presidents, they would say the president of presidents and the prime minister of prime ministers. He's in charge of all governments. That's the destiny of every single government in the world, whether it's a civil government or a church government or a family government or whatever it is. Yahweh is the high king above it. And if that's not the case, it will be broken and twisted. Let me give you two quick examples. And in order for me to do this, first of all, this is going to be an example. This is not going to be the subject of the sermon. It's just an example, so don't get hung up on the subject. What I wanted to do to make this clear was to pick a topic that all Christians in general agree on and all people in the world in general agree upon. And then take a look at how that works, either under the lordship of God or outside of the lordship of God. And so the topic, this is just an example, okay, is the fight against racism, which almost everybody acknowledges is a problem and needs to be fought against. Now, if you go back in history to the fight against racism and the fight against slavery, it is almost always when it's successfully done I can't think of an instance when it hasn't been successfully fought against outside of the lordship of God. Whether it's William Wilberforce in the 1700s in England, whether it's the abolitionist in 1800s New England, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr., this is a fantastic book by Robert Wills, uh, where he argues that the central feature of Martin Luther King Jr.'s thinking is the image of God in humans. That's, that's the only way. Like he makes this argument, so I'm going to give you a quote from MLK Jr. He says this, man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons. Look, if there's no such thing as God and the materialist and the evolutionist are right, and we're just a tiny, we're just a whirring of electrons and a, a random conglomeration of carbon material, then like Nietzsche says, go do what you want. Like if we're all just animals, there's no ground for saying that racism is morally evil. I do, do you guys remember this? This was in the news several years ago, and I'm going to botch this because I didn't write it down and I just thought of it. There was the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in New England. Are you guys familiar with them? They do like undersea exploration and marine biology stuff. Really fantastic scientific work. A few years ago, go look this up. I'm going to mess the details up a little bit, but it's out there. They had a webcam set up for like, it was a, some sort of like huge bird of prey that was close to their institute. And they had like a, a webcam set up on the nest you know, and this mother bird gave, you know, laid several eggs and gave birth to these birds. And these, uh, the, the birds, the baby birds were born, you know, and like tons of people are on this webcam watching it, you know, and you know how people are, you know, oh, how cute and everything. And then the mom, the mom started to kill one of her babies, started to peck at its head and drug it on for days. And everybody on this, people on this webcam were like saying, this is bad. Somebody has to stop this. People called Woods Hole. 
and said, you need to get up there and like stop this mom from doing this. And finally, Woods Hole took the webcam down and like put out this statement saying, I'm sorry that this is, we, we realize that this is offensive, but this is nature. <laughs> you know, we, we can't stop this. It's an animal. There's no moral rules that sit on top of it that says that a mother eagle is not allowed to kill her mother. But this is where I'm headed with this. Like if, if all we are are animals, then there is no moral rules that say that racism is wrong. And this is one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. is saying. Is we're not this, you know, this random whirring of electrons. We're not, a liber- we're not a limitless smoldering of a wisp of smoke. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. says. Man is a child of God made in his image and therefore must be respected as such. This is the only way for racism to be fought, ever fought successfully. It's always been on the basis of God sits up here, He's made us in his image, and that means that each one of us has intrinsic value. Not because, well, I'm a human and I'm just going to be nice to everybody, but because I have no choice. It's a moral evil to damage something that's made in the image of God. But now, we're, you know, we're all postmoderns here. We can talk like big boys and girls. God is dead. Nietzsche saw this 150 years ago before anybody else saw it. That means that the fight against racism cannot include God. We, we, you cannot bring God up here, you know. Any sort of policy of state must not have any sort of reference to any sort of divinity. So the fight against racism is is basically at this point, look, so 98% of people you pass by on the street, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, if you say, is racism evil? They will say, thank God. They will say yes. But if you ask them why, the answer will be something along the lines of, it's not nice. It's, you know, it's damaging to society. And like Nietzsche would say, who cares about nice? Like, since when has nice ever helped you out? Right? We're, we're animals here. There, there's no rules that say that racism is wrong. And so everybody knows this. They know the rules of the game. And so thank God they still believe that racism is wrong. But now at this point, like, hang with me. I'm headed, I'm headed somewhere with this. Now at this point, the fight against racism is a fight over who's going to be in charge. It's no longer about moral right. It's no longer about the image of God. It can't be because God doesn't exist. Now it's about who's going to be in charge. I think that racism is wrong, and so I'm going to force you to think that way too. And, and thank God, this is a good example, right, that, that people are fighting this fight. You just want them to see that actually the fight can only be won if you will acknowledge that humans are made in God's image. All, all human government will fail. It will be broken. It will be twisted. It will not be successful unless it acknowledges that it sits underneath the authority of the sovereign one true God. Now, it's not just civil government. It's my family government, too. And you guys, I've, I've given this example before, so you guys have heard this before. Like, in my house, you know, I'm more than willing to tell my kids, hey, Ephesians 5 says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So you have to do what I tell you to do. Right? And they're like, okay, I believe the Bible, too. I'll do what I tell you. But they're, they're, they're more, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not stupid. They can see that what I've done is I've taken God and I've used him as an excuse to say, it's just, a, it's just a fancy Christian way. Quoting Ephesians 5 is a fancy Christian way of saying, when you're in my house, you'll do what I tell you to do. Okay, th- that, that, go- that works right now. They're little, you know. But eventually they're going to get big, and they're going to say, wait a minute. Why do, I have to do what, why do I have to do what you tell me to do? This is just a power play. And if I don't have some sort of like, if I myself don't sit underneath the authority of God, but if I use God as a tool to get, see, there's three ways that you can be in government, in any government. Micro government, big picture government, there's three ways you can do it. You can do it underneath the authority of God. Hopefully that's, that's, that's what you know, we all do in whatever leadership positions you're in. 
You could do it under the authority of yourself. You can say, I'm in charge here. I'm the big man on campus. When I'm here and I talk, y'all listen. Or, here's the third way, you can do it nominally under the authority of God, but in reality, under your own authority. Do you guys, have you ever, have, has anybody ever heard of the princes in the tower? It's a really sad story. From the War of the Roses, the 1400s, Edward IV had uh, two sons. His oldest son was Edward V, the heir to the throne. He, he was just a young boy uh, when Edward IV, his father, died suddenly. And, it, you know, Edward V, he's young. He's not really quite fit to sit on the throne of England. And so his uncle, who was very close to the family, the Duke, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, said, you know, I, I, will, I will be the regent until he comes of age, until he turns 18. I will rule in his name and, and as his protector. And so it started off that way. Like, Gloucester, like, was, I, I'm representing my nephew here, and I'm, I'm training him. We're going to get him ready, and then I'm going to step back when he turns 18. And, and once, once he consolidated that power in the name of his nephew, Edward V, Edward V and his brother mysteriously disappeared. And they were living in the Tower of London, and the last people know is that, you know, they saw him playing, they saw them looking out a window, and they were gone. 200 years later, the skeletons of two young boys are found uh, uh, underneath the stairs in the central tower of the Tower of London. A lot of people speculated that, that was the two princes. But, but either way, whether that's them or not, it's almost universally acknowledged by historians that Richard, Duke of Gloucester, used the power of his nephew, Edward V, to consolidate his own power, and then he offed them. And that's what I do with Ephesians 5 in my house. I use God to say to my kids, you have to obey me. And then once I got them convinced that God's on my side, then it's me in charge. That's going to create tons and tons of conflict. I do it at church too, all right? I, you know, I, I wear this white robe and this green stole. I walk around with this Bible, and you know you have to you have to pay attention to me. You have to listen to me because I speak on behalf of God, and it very quickly turns into I'm going to get you to do what I want because I want to be in charge. It has nothing to do with the image of God. It has nothing to do with God's kingship. It has to do with me wanting to be in charge. And like I said earlier, I'm going to need you guys to hold me accountable to that. That I don't uh, that that all of us, every single one of us. Answers to the higher authority of the great king, God. Okay, that's the first principle. We're going to come back to that over and over again. God is the king of the universe. And that includes my family, and that includes uh, you know, our governments, and that includes this church. There's not a single square inch that he says, well, I'm going to step back and let you guys have that one. Everyone he's, he's in charge of. Now, question number two. That's very, that's very, that could be very vague, right? You know, like, that could be manipulated by people like me any way, any way that we want. God's the king of the universe, and so... Believe it or not, I speak on behalf of him. No, no, how does God, here's the question, how does God make that real on the earth? Like, how does that, how does that become actual? How does that become just not theory, you know, no, God's up there and he tells us what to do. How does that become actual? And the answer is, is God uses a human king to do this. Now, a lot of you are familiar with the Old Testament and the notion in the Old Testament, very prevalent in the Old Testament, that you don't need a human king because you have Yahweh. But actually embedded in the Old Testament is this notion that he is going to give us a human king. Now, I don't have this in the bulletin just because there wasn't enough space or time. But I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 17. You can look it up if you want to and follow along with me, or you can just listen to me read. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Moses says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. He's not going to say, stop thinking that, because I'm telling you you don't need a king. He's going to say, that's good. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he's going to say, here's what the king's going to be. 
One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, you will put a Yahweh worshiper over you. You will not have a pagan, non-Yahweh worshiper as your king. That's, that's, this is a rule. I'm not, by, by the way, I'm not giving you rules now for like how to vote. I'm not giving you rules for like, you know, you know who to elect as the president of your HOA next time. I'm, not, this is, I'm just get, I'm talking to you about how God rules on the earth, okay? So don't look for any sort of like applicable, applicable, applicable principles. Thank you, Chrissy, for the support at this point. We'll get to that later. But for Israel, God's people, you will not set, this is God's people, you will not set a not God's people over you, okay? Here's some more rules. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people, of, uh, cause the people to, uh, to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Why is that? Because God hates equestrian sports. No, it's because God, because at the time, horses and chariots are the cutting-edge military equipment. Again, we're not applying this to any sort of government. For God's people, you aren't going to, he said, this king will not aggregate power to himself by developing a military protection. That's not going to be his identity. He's not going to be like the kings. He's going to trust me. Also, he must not, uh, uh, you shall, I'm sorry, verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This is really interesting. It's like God knows who politicians are, right? Is, this a, is it a surprise to us that, like, throughout human history, that people who are given absolute power, you know, the famous Lord Acton phrase, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whether that's, whether that's like the president of the world or whether it's like, you know, the parents in a family, this is the case. If you get power, you will use it for bad stuff. And, and, and if you say to me, no, so, some leaders are like really good. And you actually, I mean, there are good leaders, but like it's actually a, an honest fact of human nature that the power we get, we use for bad ends. We use to satisfy and serve ourselves. Like in any, any ruler... Whether, again, whether government or church or family or HOA that doesn't realize this is like really super naive. Like go look at yourself in the mirror, like read your Bible, then read the newspaper and you'll see that people with power will consolidate that power if you can with military equipment. If not, people with power will use it to get sex. People with power will use it to make themselves rich. This is the story of the world. And God is saying here that the human king that I choose to rule in my name over you will not be like that. So whatever it is, your leadership position, whatever it is, do not aggregate power. Here's some application. Do not aggregate power for yourself. Do not use the authority that you have to bolster yourself. I mean, big picture, like, don't use your power to coerce people into having sex with you. Don't use your power to try to make yourself wealthy. But small picture, just don't use your power like to consolidate your power. Now, again, this is going to be principle number two. So principle number two is God chooses a human to exercise his authority through. I, do, I, do I need to tell you guys this? For those of you who are Christians, you know where this is headed, right? This is headed to the gospel reading for today. Pilate says to Jesus, you're a king. And Jesus is like, I'm a king. And Pilate's like, I don't get it. Like, you realize that you, every single person that you know, just abandoned you 15 minutes ago. You realize that you're standing here by yourself. Nobody likes you. You know, where's your army? Where's your revolution? Like, give up. And Jesus is like, no, I'm a king. I know you don't get it, but I'm a king. This is the kingship that God wants to exercise in his world. 
is the kingship of Jesus. And the, you know, what does that mean for us and how we do church government? We'll get to that later. But for right now, principle number one, God is the king of the world. Principle number two, God exercise, exercises that kingdom through Jesus. Okay, so you're like, well, now Jesus is like spiritual stuff again, right? Now, like, what about like my HOA? It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Actually, yes, again, go back to Revelation, king of kings, lord of lords. President of the HOAs of the presidents, presidents, president of the HOA over all the presidents of the HOA. Not one square inch will he leave outside of his own sovereign authority. What does that look like? Well, just a few verses later, we didn't read this either, but a few verses later in John, Pilate's going to hang a placard above his head. And Pilate, ironically, is going to insist, this is your king. He, I'm, I'm killing him. And the gospel writers are just going to leave it in there. You know why? Because it's delicious. The king of the world, God exercises his kingship over the world through the bleeding and dying body of his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm almost done. Last statement. Wherever we go from here, so we're going to talk about church government you know, over the upcoming weeks. We could talk about parenting. We could talk about marriage. We could talk about like HOA presidents. We could talk about political stuff. Wherever we go from there, However we talk about leadership, it is going to have to be filtered through the lens of the bleeding and dying Jesus. If Jesus is the suffering leader for us, I don't get to be the in charge, I make all the decisions around here leader. I'm called to be the bleeding and suffering and dying leader for this church. And you are too. And for your families. And for your HOA. That's how leadership is going to have to look. Okay. Summarize and I'm going to pray. Number one, God is the king of the universe. Number two, God exercises that kingship through a human being, Jesus. I mean, it's, he's also God, but through uh, the God-man, Jesus. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll uh, have communion. Father, I pray that you would, uh, um, I'm really not sure how to say this uh, without sounding, I don't know how to pray for humility without sounding like sanctimonious, but God, you know I'm not humble, and you know that I want these people to do what I want them to. And I want my kids to do what I want them to. And I want my wife to obey me. And I want my friends to be the kind of friends I want them to be. And so I legit, like in praying, Father, humble me underneath the authority of your son, Jesus, who was not the big boss of us, but rules over us by dying and suffering for us and rising from the dead for us. And help me to see all the authority you've given me, whatever venue, and all the authority that you've given us in whatever venues. Help us to see that through that lens of your suffering son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Okay, please stand with me and we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to continue praying specifically for St. James. And uh, we have a leadership problem here. I uh, have been selfish. And there, I'm not the only leader here, but I can speak for myself. As a leader of St. James, I've been lazy. I've been selfish. I've been concerned with making people like me and not concerned with serving people. I've been concerned with consolidating my power and getting people to agree with me and getting people to think I'm interesting and funny and, and not been concerned with proclaiming your truth. I've not sat underneath your lordship like I ought. But Father, forgive me. Help me to understand that you are the king of the universe and that your son Jesus is the way that you, not me, I'm not the king of this place, even though I'd like to think I am, but that your son Jesus is the ultimate king and authority of St. James and of Glenn Carbon and of the whole world. And help me to sit humbly under that authority. Exercise your authority, Father. Get things done around here that can't get done when I'm trying to do what I want to do. I pray that you would do this for your glory. Lord, in your mercy.
Father, I pray, as always, that you be with everyone who's suffering, uh, physical suffering right now uh, um, on our minds, uh, mental and social and psychological suffering as we all kind of grapple with the world that we're living in at this point, uh, money suffering as people's jobs are, have been uh, downsized or gotten rid of and uh, people who have uh, had steady income here in this room are worried about that. Uh, please take care of all of us. Uh, Lord, I want to pray especially this morning that you would be with your servant, Norval, who right now is, uh, he's been put on hospice as of yesterday and uh, is scared and is confused and is in a lot of physical pain uh, too. And I pray that you would comfort him and give him hope in your son's resurrection and that you would work the miracle which you and your sovereign grace could work if you wanted to. You could heal him. And we know that you're going to. That it might be miraculously now, miraculously but temporarily now, or it might be permanently on the last day when you raise his body out of the grave and make it new again. And all of us too. Convince him of this. Give him hope in this. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only come here into your throne room now under the auspices of your son Jesus. Only in the auspices of your son Jesus. He's bound us to himself in such a way that when you look at us, you see him. And when you look at him, you see us. And so we're free to come in here and speak to you as daughters and sons to their own father. And so we willingly confess that we're coming in here only in his name. Amen. Let's uh, confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he said, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Body and thy blood. 
soul.